Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. Technology has produced a cure. It's called a Game Boy, the personal game-playing system from Nintendo with lots of sports, action, and puzzle games to choose from. And it comes with a puzzle game Tetris. It could change your outlook. I'm sorry, sir. Your flight's been delayed. Cool. Game Boy by Nintendo. Have you had your fun today? Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 32 of Graveyard Duck Podcast. With you, as always, my name is Scott. And I'm Wes. All right, well, Wes... Um, I'm going to try to make this conversation as simple as possible. We're, we're back. This was my pick. Um, we're talking this week about Final Fantasy Adventure for the Game Boy. Mm-hmm. Although um, I think we're going to start off and just confuse the hell out of everybody right now because this is a game that has how many? Three, four, five different titles, depending on who you ask. Yeah, I believe it is five. <laughs> depending on what country you're from, what franchise you want to consider this part of. Yeah, it's uh it's a mess. I think it's a game that a lot of people are familiar with, and I think the Final Fantasy, whether that's literal or not, uh, name carries a lot of weight. But mm. um, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about about this game, so let's just dig right into it. Uh, game was released for the Game Boy, like I said, originally in, uh, well, without getting into the titles yet, Japan got it in June of 91. We got it in November of 91, and Europe in 93, a couple years later. And then in 98, there was a re-release in North America. Uh, since then, it's seen a couple other ports. Um, you said you have it for... Yes, Vita. The Vita, right. Um, it's been available on iPhones recently, uh, been reported onto the Switch just last year. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's gone around uh, mostly the... I think the Game Boy one is what people are familiar with. Yeah. Um, Game Boy Advance as well. Yeah, that's true. The Game Boy Advance version. Um, so as far as some of the titles here, like like I said, it's a Final Fantasy adventure is what it's known as here. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, this was released as Seiken Densetsu, which if you know that title, that's the basically original installment of the Seiken Densetsu franchise, which Seiken Densetsu 2 is what we know of as Secret of Mana. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seiken Densetsu 3 never came out here in the U.S., has never been translated, at least not officially. Yeah, we got um, uh, Secret of Evermore at the time, which was the U.S.-developed uh, sequel to Secret of Mana. Right. It has nothing to do with it other than a very similar engine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in Japan, this game was released as part of a completely different franchise, although it was still known over there as Final Fantasy Gaiden, which is Gaiden meaning spin-off or side story. Mm-hmm. So it was des- developed as a tangential fan- Final Fantasy game, which is mm-hmm. kind of weird to say because Final Fantasy never has continuity in their fan- franchise. Like all the games are independent of one another other than common elements. And, and this shares some of that. Like there's, you'll see Moogles and Chocobos and things like that. Yeah. But the game was popular enough and kind of had enough independent themes going through it, a lot of which we'll talk about, that that kind of spurred its own franchise, hence Seiken Densetsu 2 and 3. So, and then if you want to get into where it hit Europe, um, they just called it Mystic Quest, which up until that point, they had never had a Final Fantasy game in Europe. Mm -hmm. So... This was their first one, so there was no sense calling it Final Fantasy anything. So they just called it Mystic Quest, which then became even more confusing later when in the U.S. we got what we know as Final Fantasy Mystic Quest and 
So then when that one went over to Europe, they had to call it Mystic Quest Legend. Is anybody confused yet? Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, every continent has had this this game is and is a different title completely. Is it a Final Fantasy game? Is it a mana game? Is it both? Well, let's just say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, this was very confusing for most Americans growing up because we didn't know any better at all. Um, am I correct in assuming from what you said that you have no real nostalgia for this? Well, here's the thing. Um, I didn't play it when it came out, but I remember hearing about it. And I also, at the time, uh, I did play Final Fantasy Legend, which is completely different. That is, um, isn't that based off of the Saga series? Yes. So I played that one. I always got the two mixed up a little bit as to which one was which. Okay. So I didn't actually play. Um, I didn't play the Game Boy um, Final Fantasy Adventure till probably pretty recently. But I had actually started playing this game with the 2003 remake, uh, Sword of Mana, on the Game Boy Advance. That's where I first started playing this one. And then um, recently, then in 2016, when Adventures of Mana came out on the Vita. I bought that, and I've been playing that one. So I have more, a little bit more knowledge of, of the Vita remake and a little bit of the Game Boy Advance remake, but not so much uh, the original version. Okay. Yeah, and I didn't realize until very recently that Sword of Mana was a remake of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was just another you know, installment in that franchise because they also had Legend of Mana and other things for future yeah, systems. It, it's different to see that you know a game like this has gotten like, basically you know two different reimaginings throughout the years and they're all they're all unique in their own way like they have kind of the same core elements but um you know each of them kind of does things differently and it's it's really a product of different designers and you know different teams coming together and sort of adapting either like popular trends of the time or you know doing something a little bit different to the game so kind of interesting um it's not you don't normally see two or three different remakes of a game like this. Right. Yeah, definitely. And other than, you know, there's games that get re-released or ported, but not in such a drastic, Mm -hmm. complete remake. Um, And I think that to some degree, that was because of the popularity of Secret of Mana. You know, that Mm -hmm. game was huge over here, you know, arguably one of the three greatest RPGs for the 16-bit era. And one of the first multiplayer RPGs too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think because that became so popular, it was only natural to go back and you know shine another spotlight on this. Mm-hmm. But to go back, you know, a little bit to 1991 when we were first playing this, like it, it confused the hell out of me um, yeah. because obviously I knew nothing about the Mana franchise at that point. Um, but yeah, so picking this game up and. At, at this point, I had been a fan of Final Fantasy uh, for the NES. Uh, I, I, I knew the franchise. I liked it. And so to see this game coming out on Game Boy, I was also aware of, like you were, Final Fantasy Legend. And mm-hmm. I think I picked maybe both of these up used at a electronic boutique or something. And just thinking like, oh, two different Final Fantasy games for Game Boy. And then being really confused why as to why they were so drastically different from one another. Yeah, you know, come to find out, neither one of them is actually a Final Fantasy game, um, and so yeah, this one just being so different because it's if if people haven't played it, it's much more of an action RPG than it is a traditional RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, think almost like Zelda with leveling up. Yeah. Um, you're going around, you know, you, you start off with a sword, you end up picking up a lot of different weapons. Each one kind of has a different tool utility you know they can get through different obstacles and whatever but it's it's definitely just a you know mash the a button hack and slash type game um which is not like the final fantasies that we had had previously so this felt so bizarre and so weird you only had one person in your party and then you had this like second character that kind of swapped in and out so this was at a period of time 1991 where i was eating this kind of game up i loved it and it, it was a ton of fun but i was always confused because it never felt like a final fantasy game mm. um and it wasn't until much much later i think maybe even college that i realized like oh wait a minute like that's because japan renamed this 
or Nintendo of America renamed it when they uh, localized it. Mm-hmm. And that was also the same time we were realizing that, uh, you know, oh yeah, we never got actual Final Fantasy 2 or 3. And what we were calling 2 and 3 were 4 and 6. And all the weird mm-hmm. like lies that we had been told in our childhood were coming to light, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, like you said, it just, it, by the time this came out, I mean, we only had the first Final Fantasy to really draw on. So mm-hmm. uh, I can see where you'd be sort of confused. It also kind of looks like, you know, for this version, that a lot of sprite work and stuff was kind of made to look similar to Final Fantasy to kind of give it that uh, sort of tie it together a little bit. Like the main character kind of reminds me so much of like the, the fighter sprite. Yes. You know, the same kind of hair and stuff like that. And uh, even some of the towns, when you get into uh, like the item shops and stuff, they, they look like the original Final Fantasy building. Yes. So um, a lot of that, I'm sure, was done on purpose as far as the localization to kind of give it that, uh, that tie-in to Final Fantasy. But yeah, like you said, we only had one game in that series at the time. So, you know, of course... I guess you would you wouldn't really think too much about it. It's just yeah, it's Final Fantasy Adventure, so it's just it's an adventure game, I guess. Right. Yeah. So it was. I don't know. Did we have Part Four by this point? Mm. That was summer of '91 in Japan. I don't remember when we got it here in the U.S., but it was. I think. It it was close. So I mean, if you were buying this brand new, then yeah, the first one was all you had to go off of. But um, I know I had played four by this point, but yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's a very different game if you're going into it thinking Final Fantasy. Um, and like I said, I, my only real nostalgia for it was I bought it used. I, I played it a lot. I really enjoyed it, but I just didn't really quite know why um, mm-hmm. because it didn't fit the mold of anything that I was used to. And it's like, if I wanted an adventure game, it didn't quite feel like it had all the same elements as say a Zelda, but then it wasn't quite an RPG either. It just kind of fell in the middle somewhere. Um, but it still has this charm that, that really worked. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, since then I've gone back and played it uh, maybe three or four times and a lot more recently than when I, you know, back in 91. But um, I think after I played it the first time, I was like, okay, that was, that was interesting. And I kind of set it aside and it was maybe, you know, 10, 11 years later before I thought like, oh, I, 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 I'd like to revisit that now, especially knowing, you know, the, the mana series and giving it a, another shake and realizing that there, there's actually a lot to this. And it's a, it's a good game that you should give a, you know, a, a fair shake to, but um, it, it all completely depends on what light you come at it from. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally agree. And in fact, uh, even though I didn't play this at release, I think, like you said, having played other games that are similar to this it, and and knowing the history about it, I, I was able to appreciate it a lot more uh, even now. And it's still kind of another fun thing for me about the show is discovering games that I didn't play growing up and kind of thinking like, wow, this is, you know, sort of a, a classic game that a lot of people have nostalgia for that I haven't played. And to really kind of dig into it and really enjoy it for the first time is still I think that's still a good feeling uh, to have, especially when it's a really good game, because it's still it's almost like you're you're transported back to that time almost to think, wow, this is really this is a really fun game. It's really cool. Uh, you know, looking through the map, the instruction manual stuff like that. It's just uh, it's a fun feeling of nostalgia. But I think coming from for me personally, coming from playing games like The Legend of Zelda and like uh, the Ease series, for instance, this feels kind of similar to that as far as that action RPG element. And so, like I said, after playing other games that are like this, I can still go back and enjoy this one quite a bit. Yeah, um, I, I definitely see what you're saying. And I think that, you know, this this was in the height of, you know, Zelda popularity. So anything that kind of anything that was reminiscent of that, I think, was naturally popular, but also was kind of judged unfairly because mm-hmm. everything was being compared to that. Yeah, um, well, I mean, it, it set a really high bar at the time. You know? Sure, sure. Um, but I mean, to be fair, this did a lot of things that were different. So if you were able to kind of look past that and judge this for its own merit, there's a lot of really cool elements that this included. Um, a lot of which you, you see kind of carry over through the rest of, you know, the mana games, which I think is neat. Um, most notably the, the use of multiple weapons. So like I said, in the game, you start with a sword and as you kind of progress, I 
think if I remember right, there's maybe seven different weapons you find. Mm -hmm. Um, and each one has a little bit, you know, different attack power. So sometimes going, you know, from the sword and then you find the ax, it's like, okay, the ax is actually a little bit better, but they also just have different abilities and also enemies have different weaknesses to certain, uh, weapons. Some, uh, some enemies, you know, take a ton of damage from one type and are immune to others. So you kind of have to constantly be switching back and forth and you can, you know, change your equipment on the fly just by going into the menu. So it's, it's, you know, very common to be in a dungeon and you're switching back and forth between the ax and the sickle and the chain flail and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like the, most of the items have some sort of special ability. Like there's trees out in the wilderness that if you have the ax, you can chop them down. Uh, the sickle, you kind of swing that in an arc, and it cuts down some plants, you know, lawnmower style. The or the chain flail acts like the whip and secret of mana, where you can kind of like pull yourself over gaps. And um, yeah, there's, so so there's it's just kind of cool that they're both tools and weapons. Um, but you you like don't get rid of one when you get a new one. You kind of always have this arsenal of all six or seven, however many there are, and you can kind of switch around and find different tools and or different combinations that work for different bosses. Um, so that's, that's kind of a neat aspect, which like we said, is carried over into other mana games. I think one of the most notable parts of secret of mana is that you do have the different weapons and you kind of build your skill with each one, but that's some of the replay value of that. And it plays into this too. Like you could pick one versus the other and, you know, kind of have a completely different game experience. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's one of the things I really like about it is you're not just stuck with the same sword and the same attacks throughout the game. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I found other weapons, especially like the sickle, and swinging it around, it's like, oh, that feels really good. You know, or finding the uh, like the chain whip kind of thing. It's like, oh, that kind of feels like Castlevania a little bit or yeah. the hookshot from Zelda. And so it it's pretty neat. And it's neat to be able to, like you said, switch up different things and... Uh, it keeps it from feeling repetitive, even though it kind of is, but uh, you know, it gives you a chance to kind of play with different types of, of attacks and things like that, whether it be like a, a spinning area of attack or a uh, straight ahead, long distance whip attack or a sword. And that's, that's cool. I mean, I like when you have different weapons that all feel good and you can switch between them freely. Right. Uh, and you know, and the weapons aren't the only attack you have. You've, can use magic. Um, there's about a half a dozen or so different spells in the game. You know, your standard attack spells, lightning, fire, ice, nuke, but there's two uh, kind of mild offensive spells that you can use as well, sleep and mute. Um, but like, it's what's so fun about the game too, is that that's also completely optional. Like there's very, very few times in the game where you have to use a spell uh, sometimes, or usually it's like the ice spell, which when you hit an enemy with it, turns them into a little snowman. Yeah. And then you can kind of push them around and use them to trigger floor pressure plates and things like that. But otherwise, if you want to, you can completely ignore magic. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can, you know, really boost up your magic and be almost like a wizard class in the game. Yeah, um, yeah there's the, a lot of flexibility to how you want to play the game. Right. And the the way the level system works every time you gain a level um, you, you get to pick four different customized ways that your, your stats build. Um, and I, I forget actually how they, what they name it in the U S version. Um, it's like, I think you could just call whether you want it to go to like endurance, stamina, magic, or wisdom, I think. But yeah. in Japanese, they actually call it classes. Like you can go toward like, monk class or mage class or mm. healer class and it's the same thing but it like you're, you're gonna get a stat bonus in like two or three of your four stats each time you pick one of the level up types but if you go like the the monk class or what they call the stamina in english it'll give you a lot more health but you don't get hardly any magic um in other ones, you know, your wisdom goes way higher, but maybe you don't get as many hit points. Um, but so it, it allows you to really customize how you want to play. And you can either have really high hit points, you can have really high attack power, you can have a whole bunch of magic points, 
or you can really boost your your willpower, which is a completely different aspect and technique of the game. Um, what this is, this is kind of like your your charging of of your attacks. So there's a little bar at the bottom of the screen, and every time you make an attack, it resets this bar, and then that bar starts building. Now at the beginning of the game, it takes you know a minute or two for that bar to completely fill. Once it does, you get to unleash like some super attack with whatever weapon you have, and each weapon is a different super attack. The higher your wisdom or your willpower, though, the faster that bar fills up. Mm-hmm. And I played through this game before where I just focused all of my energy on getting that up, and I mean it refills almost instantly after an attack. And that's a really satisfying and fun way to play the game because you're just doing super attacks almost every single time you swing. Mm-hmm. Um, you you do that, you know, as a sacrifice to hit points or magic or something. But like, it, it, it's just fun that you know, an adventure game like this, you get the choice to be: Do you want to be a fighter with an axe? Do you want to be more of a magic user with a lance? Do you want to be, you know, how do you want to play it? And there's so many different ways, and there's no one way that's necessarily better. Yeah, that's uh, especially evident in the Vita remake, which is what I've been playing mostly. But uh, it's not only are there trophies for maxing out each individual stat, like if you max your warrior stat out to 100, that's a trophy. Um, Same with magic and willpower and everything else. But uh, the funny thing is, in the Vita remake, the the warrior, monk, uh, willpower, like those, it's Final Fantasy style. In fact, it has the like Final Fantasy uh, sprite work of the character, like for each of those levels. So it still kind of ties in a little bit, you know. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's got a nice little, uh, sort of nice little nod to Final Fantasy that way. So does his appearance change as you like pick one versus others? No, no. It's that's strictly just on the menu. Um, when you level, oh, okay. you're picking what stat you want to level up. It just it. It's just an icon that's indicated right there, but it's still a cool little nod. Yeah. To it, you know. Yeah, that would be cool if, like, at, if your stamina was higher than everything else. If you started, you know, if all of a sudden your character sprite looked like a monk, or if you're. That would be cool, but the uh, the Vita version is it's full 3D uh, graphics, so it's not it's not sprite based. Right. But. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think that the the variations on how you can play this game are just are really fun they add a lot of um just just variety it, it it's it's impressive for a 1991 game boy title to oh, have something like that in it i mean absolutely. we were singing the praises of Link's awakening a couple weeks ago and you know just how much depth that had for the game boy mm-hmm. and i think that this is you know an, another example of something that's just really really impressive yeah, um, i would say it has just as much if not more um depth to it as Link's Awakening did. In fact, for again, for a system that at the time was mostly known for its puzzle games and not really known for its fast action type games, uh, I think this really, really kind of opened up the the Game Boy as far as it being a, a, you know, having a a pretty full-fledged RPG on the go at the time, I think. Right. was pretty cool. Well, and it's it's remarkable to think that, you know, a franchise is popular and prolific as you know the mana series started on game boy like mm-hmm. and yeah. it's 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 remarkable to think that the game boy was able to produce something big enough that it was not only able uh, able to break away from this final fantasy franchise which was ginormous mm-hmm. but then spawn something completely new like that's just unheard of for game boy yeah and it actually, um, I was doing a little bit of research for before the show here. It actually, it probably wouldn't have originally started on the Game Boy. It actually goes back to about 1987 um, that this game was in planning. And I, uh, I didn't know this, but I was digging up some information about it. Uh, this game was uh, designed and directed by Koichi Ishii, who is has been sort of the steward of the Mana franchise for a long time. Um, he's been involved with quite a few of them. But something interesting I found out was um, in 87, um, the trademark name was registered for Seiken Densetsu, but at the time, uh, it was actually going to be known as Seiken Densetsu, The Emergence of Excalibur, and it was going to be for the Famicom Disk System, of all things. Hmm. And interestingly enough, it was going to be five discs. It was going to be this huge, huge game on the FDS, which at the time, um, 
the Famicom Disk System was already starting to wane because cartridge memory was starting to get bigger than what the disk memory was. So um, somewhere I ran across, I think it was, uh, I think it was on Wikipedia, was talking about like um, pre-orders had opened up for the game, but uh, they were canceled. Then once the once the FDS version of the game was canceled and people were refunded, but um, in October, it says customers that had placed orders were sent a letter informing them of the cancellation, and it also suggested placing an order for another upcoming Square role-playing game called Final Fantasy. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Um, so then after that, this game was going to be known as uh, Genma Knights, and then it became uh, Seiken Densetsu, you know, Final Fantasy Gaiden, which is kind of neat. So, um, But interestingly, if you know, for, for those of us that are huge RPG fans and stuff, if you look at the um, the names behind this game and then look at what else they've done, I mean, it's, you know, this game deserves to stand up there with the best of the best as far as the classic JRPGs. Um, for instance, you've got, um, like I said, Ishii, who did um, this game, was also involved in, um, obviously, the other Mana series, uh, most of the other games, up to about 2006. Um he was also involved in uh, Final Fantasy XI. He was the original director on that. And then uh, more recently, um, he went on to form the developer studio Grezzo. And Grezzo went on to uh, remaster Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and Fort Sword's Anniversary on the 3DS and Majora's Mask. And then more, most recently, um, he was director and producer on Ever Oasis, which oh, okay. is... Uh, Zelda style uh, 3DS game, which is cool. Um, so that was pretty neat. Um, the scenario then for Final Fantasy Adventure was also written by Yoshinori Kitase, and he's done obviously a ton of stuff, but he's done uh, map design for Romancing Saga. Uh, he was scenario writer and director uh, of Final Fantasy VI. Um, obviously, he directed and wrote Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII, Ergies. I mean, this guy has got just an amazing list of accomplishments and it's all, you know, a ton of square games that most people know and love and it's still involved to this day. So it's cool to see where, you know, a lot of this game, a lot of its DNA sort of comes from was, you know, a couple of these huge industry titans that are just, you know, known for fantastic JRPGs. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was always surprised because one of my favorite things about this game is the soundtrack. And yes. the um, composer, Kenji Ito, um, like his, this was only his second credit. Right. He did Final Fantasy Legend 2 prior to this, but and he was only kind of a co-composer there. But most of the other stuff, I mean, he's got a huge list. After that, a lot of the other mana games, uh, various like almost all of the romancing saga games um so he, he's he's done a ton but i was just really surprised that there was really nothing prior to this because the, the soundtrack is simple like there's there's only a, a handful of tracks and they're all somewhat repetitive but there's something that's just really really magical about them all too and yeah, there's a, there's a re- real sense of of melody an adventure to the the music and especially considering the game boy sound hardware to get something that sounds as like you said as, as beautiful and as eloquent as it does uh that doesn't sound like you know nails on a chalkboard so to speak like some game boy games could just sound terrible you right know? but to really have a grasp of of what the hardware was capable of and to create that kind of music i agree with you i think it's it's really good yeah yeah so i mean obviously the the legacy that came from this game you know in terms of the um the works and the, the people involved is is huge mm-hmm. I, I i love that this game also just like going back to it now retrospectively I, I love playing it because it does blend two of my you know favorite rpg franchises mm-hmm. it, it is this weird you know like love child of the two even though it kind of in a lot of ways came before either one of them was terribly well established mm-hmm. um but you you see all these little elements from both, and that's just kind of a, this fun mashup. Like the so many elements from later mana games show up here. Mostly a lot of the enemies. Like as you're walking around the overworld, if if you've played Secret of Mana at all, you know every one of these enemies. Like the little imps. There's the little like rabbit head things. 
Uh, so many of these bosses come back in Secret of Mana um, almost looking exactly the same. It's just, it, it's a fun nod in that regard. But then there's also these Final Fantasy elements that are thrown in, such as you can get Moogled. Um, there's a um, town that has you know white mages and black mages from Final Fantasy walking around. Mm-hmm. And there's just all these little elements of, of both games kind of combined, which, like I said, as a kid playing, it just kind of confused me. Mm-hmm. Now, going back retrospectively, it's like so cool just to see this blending of two things I love. Yeah. There's actually, there's a really cool quote that I ran across by Ishii. Uh, and he said that uh, Mana is not a series of video games, rather a world illustrated by and explored through video game, which is, huh. it's kind of cool because, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of enemies kind of are, are present throughout most of the games. But um, the other thing that's interesting with um, Japanese games in particular, a lot of directors and designers um, went for um, something that's referred to as sekaken or sekakan, which is basically like a worldview. Um, so that's like the feel of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading the unauthorized history of Japanese video games, volume two, and I probably talked about it on the show before, but in those books, um, they interview a lot of, directors and designers and programmers that worked on a lot of classic games and a lot of them tend to tend to reference um Sekai-kan. and it seems to be sort of um sort of a, a common thing in japanese game design where you know you really take into account the the view of the world and how your game interacts with your vision for the story and the characters and things like that and i think it's really cool because it does sort of, like you said, it links everything together, but it kind of gives it this lived-in feeling almost. Definitely. You know? and, and I mean, the the elements are there, and I, th- I think Final Fantasy is a, another great example of that, although by the time you've spanned 15 titles plus all the spinoffs, like, it gets a little muddled. But with the Mana series, at least the ones I've played, like they all do have this same feel. Mm-hmm. Um they're usually all like the, the the mana tree is is a very important and prominent component to them all, mm-hmm. um, and I would say that's kind of the the centerpiece for every one of these games. And is it the root of the game? <laughs> I, I was going to say the seed, but you know, um, uh, you know, we can branch out a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone and just move on. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's like that's that's kind of your really core. Stomach, that one. God damn it! <laughs> Take that. Um, yeah. So I mean, there, there, there's your core, and then everything just kind of builds around that. But, but you're right. It's like it feels like this this world. Um, mm-hmm. Secret cool. of, Secret of Mana was a great example of that too. Where one of the great greatest parts about that game is when you get the dragon and you can fly overhead and just see. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the early games that had mode seven. You know, flight. And you're just looking at this giant map that you can explore, and it's just it's mind blowing. Um, I've seen one uh, picture floating around online, and I'll see if I can find it, and maybe post it on social media, where somebody took a mashup and a mosaic of all the screenshots from uh, Final Fantasy Adventure mm-hmm. and made a world map. Oh, that's cool. It, it's it's really cool, and it's you know again uh, this huge world, but you can kind of get that scope of where the big forests are, where the desert is, you know, lakes and all that. And it, it feels so neat. And that I, I definitely agree with that. And it's like, every time I come back to one of these, these mana games is that it's, it's not, it's not about the game itself. Like all the games are great. I love the mechanics. I love that they have similar elements, but, but yeah, there's something about this like magical you know, world. That's mm-hmm. the real draw. So yeah, it, you're able to, as a player, you're able to kind of place yourself into that world as you're playing it. And uh, at least that's how I feel like when I'm playing a, a good game that really kind of draws me in, you know, you, you imagine kind of what, what this world is like normally, you know, and you're the hero on this quest or whatever. But uh, another thing that kind of helps with that is, you know, like you said, there's a map that kind of shows the whole overworld. And the, there was a map that came with the game originally. That was one of the other benefits of, you know, physical media that's kind of lost, starting to get lost a little bit in this day and age, 
some of it's starting to come back a little bit too, but you know, having like a physical piece of uh, paper or something like that, that kind of shows you the map, the screens, you know, it, it lets your imagination really kind of run wild. Absolutely. We've all got those stories of buying a game, you know, as a kid or something like that. And on the, on the way home, you're either looking at the back of the box or reading through the book, or you're looking at the map, like maybe you took the instruction book to school and you're just thinking like, you're just imagining what this game is like, you know, Mm -hmm. like, wow, I can't wait to see, you know, what's on this screen or I can't wait to see what, what's up here. And that's cool. I mean, that's cool to me. And you still see that with a lot of games here and there, but you know, most, most of your modern games, you know, you've got your in-game maps and stuff like that, but to really have like something tangible, you know, to really kind of draw you in really helps with that, that worldview. Yeah. And I mean, when the, when the map is part of the game itself, like that, that that takes some of that away because I know exactly what you're saying. And Nintendo power also did a great job. Like there were, some games, uh, Simon's Quest was a great example of one where you never saw a whole world map of Transylvania sure. except in that Nintendo Power where it laid it all out and you know, you've know you got this perspective of, oh, here's where this mansion is in relation to this swamp. And it's just like, that's still one of my favorite things that's ever been in a Nintendo Power. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, your imagination just suddenly takes that and just makes this giant world. Whereas without that, it's kind of just screens and especially in in the case of this game where it's, you know, a series of black and white screens, it's like, sure, there's forests and there's trees and there's this screen has some rocks. This screen has a beach, like, but it's hard to put all that together. Mm. But then when you can see kind of a, a fully illustrated uh, rendering of like what that all is, like your brain just gets sucked in and yeah, your imagination just kind of runs with it. Yeah. And I feel like the Elder Scrolls games do this really well, too. Uh, you know, especially like Skyrim and Oblivion and stuff like that. Like having this full map, this, you know, Middle Earth style map and you see everything laid out. It's just it's cool because you can't help but imagine like, well, what's over here? Or what's in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. That. So I think that, you know, if you've learned anything about me from now 30 some episodes of this show, it's that I'm very old school. I like my retro games. I don't typically like them tampered with or altered but you know remakes not really my thing but i think that this is one of those games where i might make a slight exception Mm -hmm. and like i said i've never played sort of mana but i really am intrigued by this now and just seeing some screenshots of it to where it made the aesthetic that of you know the other mana games yeah and yeah it's more colorful and it's got that sort of cartoony look that secret or mana had right and you know this original is always going to have a you know warm place in my heart because of the nostalgia and because i love it and i love just that classic feel it's also the most gritty feeling of all of them Mm -hmm. um but yeah to be able to play this game but in kind of the second densezu 2 and 3 style like that's really appealing to me Um, yeah it's okay i mean it's it's got some issues um most notably with the uh, the partner AI is a little wonky at times, but um, it's not bad, you know. As far well, it can't as, be worse than in this when they're basically just walking around in blind circles, throwing spears at whatever. Yeah, it just it just feels a little different. I don't know. It's hard to put my finger on it, but uh, you'll know when you play it. It's you know, it's not bad. Like I said, when I played it um, when it came out in uh, like '03, I think it was. This game yeah. was still pretty new, and I enjoyed it at the time. But uh, I don't know if you get a chance to um, the Adventures of Mana is also it's also a mobile game uh, in addition to being on the Vita and it's pretty good you know I the only thing I don't care for I'm not a huge fan of of the 3D art style of it just because I think it looks it looks like a mobile game yeah time. yeah I don't know if I want it to go full 3D like that might be over my line it. it I mean, it goes away after a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I understand, like, you're not going to have a full Sprite 3D remake of the game. You know, it's it's obviously um, done in a way to, you know, show up on a couple of different platforms and, and be, you know, have parity between the two. But uh, one of the things I do like about Adventures of Mana is you can actually select the original Game Boy soundtrack. And you can switch back and forth anytime between like the new orchestral version and the original Game Boy music. So I thought that was cool. 
That is cool. So I'm like I said, I'm enjoying that one. Uh, I've been playing it off and on for since it came out. I haven't finished it, but uh, I've kind of gotten back into it more in the past week since we've been gearing up to talk about the game. Uh, so I mean, it goes on sale quite a bit too. So you can pick it up cheap. It's totally worth it. Sure. Yeah, and if we're going to talk about future versions of this franchise too, I've never picked up Rise of Mana, which is the the other one that's phone only. But I know I guess that one got a Vita release too, didn't it? Rise of Mana. Yeah, um, it's the most recent one, other than the kind of more recent remakes, 2014, 2015. I'm not familiar with that one. I'd have to have to look that up. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I think that you know this game has a lot going for it. It obviously created you know, it, it spawned one franchise and was still arguably faithful to another. I mean, well enough that they stamped the Final Fantasy logo on it. And mm-hmm. um, Other than confusing a whole lot of kids back in 1991, I think that it was, you know, it, I think unfortunately it wasn't very well received now that I think about it. Um, I did have a lot of friends that had this and they much preferred the Final Fantasy Legend games because sure. those were more RPG to them, which is, you know... It, judged unfairly because they were my friends were looking for an rpg when they picked up a final fantasy game this felt weird and i think it's the same way that people felt about mystic quest for super nintendo like that was arguably you know a flawed game but it was hard to judge it fairly because everybody wanted a final fantasy game and that was like an action rpg Mm -hmm. but um yeah so i don't know how fair what's that do you think it would have changed had they went with a different title definitely let's say just called it sort of mana or if they you know called it something else would it have stood out more do you think i i don't know that it would have gotten picked up um i think that it would have become a much more obscure game Mm. and it would probably be one of those where in japan it would have sold really well people would have known it from there and Mm. it probably would have been one of those where if if it got localized here at all it, it probably would have flown under the radar and then retroactively people would have gone back and looked for it after they realized that second Densetsu two was so great. They would mm. have been like, Oh, the first one of this was for the game boy. Like I completely ignored it. I should go play it now. Um, well, so I don't, in a way that some people did do that though, because like you mentioned originally it came out in 91 or 92, but, um, and I don't know if you mentioned this, but, it got a re-release in 98 by Sunsoft. So another uh, company, just basically a publisher, basically just picked it up and re-released it on the Game Boy. So you have like the Sunsoft version and then you have just the Square the Square Enix version as well. Right. I don't know. I think in a way, I think it was probably a good thing that it was called Final Fantasy Adventure at first to kind of draw on some people that, like you said, yeah, they might have been looking for a different Final Fantasy game, but in a way, then that led to future games. And I just almost think that had you not called the original one Final Fantasy Adventure, had it just been called like Sword of Mana or whatever, would there have been sequels? Would the Mana sequels have done as well as they did? I don't know. It's hard to say. But... It is. And and the other thing is like back then, we just didn't have that understanding or that mentality that something could actually be something else and was... Yeah. titled differently like well yeah it was it was, it was a completely unknown factor you right. know right. i mean we didn't have an import scene you know that we do now we didn't have the internet but it's also interesting to think that you know the nostalgia that we have for these games is completely different than what somebody in europe or japan had you know that grew up with a different game like oh i remember mystic quest and it's like yeah i do too but mystic quest was something else for me and you know i don't know now you don't see that anymore as much just kind of right Right. So yeah, I th- I think that if it would if it was titled anything else, it probably would not have been played hardly at all. But because it just became the black sheep as it did, because it was titled what it was, I think that I I don't know. It's mm-hmm. like you said, hard to say. Yeah. So anyway, um, I don't know. I mean, o- overall, are you kind of a fan of this as you've kind of been playing through it recently, or? I am actually, yeah, and I've I've grown to appreciate it more. Uh, you know, kind of digging into it a little bit more and learning the history of it. I, I can really respect what they were doing with the hardware at the time. And I, I really do enjoy that feel of the game and especially the series, just, you know, kind of 
seeing is how the series has evolved, how this game has been remade a couple of times. Uh, I think they each have their own strengths and weaknesses, but they're all different enough, but they yet similar enough that they're enjoyable. And I would I would say that if you're a fan of Zelda, if you're a fan of Ease or um, action RPGs like that, I believe this game is totally worth checking out. I think it still holds up to this day. In fact, I think it the original version, the uh, Game Boy version, I think has aged a little bit better, especially in this age of, of indie games and stuff like that. I mean, to go back and have a pixelated sprite version of a top-down RPG is, you know, to discover an original game that you haven't played before, I think that it still holds up. Right. Oh. So uh, have you finished it? Have you ever played through it all the way through? I have not finished it. Um, I, I've read the story and, like, the synopsis, so I know what happens. Uh, but I haven't had time to actually sit down and, and finish it yet. Okay. I wasn't going to spoil it for you, but it's that was the one other comment I wanted to make about this game is that, you know, believe it or not, for an early Game Boy title, this has a hell of a deep story to it. It does. Yeah, it um, absolutely does. It doesn't seem like it at first because it's, you know, your your character is basically this gladiator who decides like, oh, this life sucks. I'm going to get out of here. And he kind of like, Makes well, up in in a prison, like you know, fighting monsters just to survive. I mean, right. you're, you're in prison. I mean, right from the get go, and you watch your, you know, your only friend get mauled. And, right. You know, you decide to escape at that point. That's that's heavy stuff right off the bat. So you kind of make a break for it and learn. You know, by eavesdropping, you come upon the basically the Black Knight, the sorcerer in the game, who is planning to destroy the Mana Tree. Um, and they didn't like that you heard that, so they kind of throw you off of a cliff, and it's you, you kind of are piecing together the story. There's supposedly this girl who's the key to getting to the tree and saving it, and you meet her, and then it's kind of your journey to get to this tree, and as you kind of learn this, the kind of your connection to it all, like I, I don't know, like people die, and <laughs> there's um, mm-hmm. just tons of stuff that in in here that is like man like this is heavy for a kid's game yeah. but oh absolutely it is but yeah definitely worth playing definitely worth seeing the where it all goes where where it came from or where these stories came from and what kind of developed from it so yeah i'm gonna give this a big recommend too yeah i think so too in fact um we put a little bit of uh uh some feelers out there to get um uh, some other uh listeners memories and thoughts of the game and I just wanted to uh, share Scott LaFerry's uh, memories of the game real quick because uh, he got this game for Christmas when he was in grade school. Uh, got it in Final Fantasy Legend at the same time, but he actually played this one way more. Uh, Scott goes on to say that he poured over the map that came with it, which he still has, uh, trying to get all the best items. Maxed out my level and stats, had all the best gear. Loved this game a lot and still remember how bittersweet the ending felt to me. Yep. You know, so that's, I mean, that's a big thing, especially if you grew up playing this game. You know, you probably remember what the ending was and how it affected you because you probably weren't expecting that at the time, you know. Right. So I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but um, if you do check this game out, I mean, play through it to the end and, uh, you know, just be ready to be floored. Yeah, definitely. So big recommend from both of us. Um, I think that despite what you want to call this game, it's it's worth tracking down and playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting just learning the the history of all the different names because this is probably one of the i don't know probably a game that probably has probably the most titles of anything as far as localized version yeah it's it's got to be close um there's a lot of other weird things and you know they most of them are related to square in some way yeah well on on the other hand like we talked in the like the contra episode you know it was like contra was known as probotector in europe it was known as grizor in japan and just you know, just interesting. Yeah. Castlevania here, Akubujo, Dracula in Japan. Um, I don't know. Just... Don't forget about the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, we've got a, uh, I think that about wraps this episode up, but we've got uh, another good one coming in two weeks. This is going back to your pick and one that you've been talking about for, uh, for quite a while. I have actually. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, talk about that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, more to come on that. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything right now, but suffice to say, th- it is a classic that a lot of people have played on the NES, and the series is still growing strong today. So, 
yep. uh, look forward to that. But until then, we've got uh, another Graveyard Duck Challenge that we got to get to. Yeah, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Well, we're uh, taking a little bit of a tangent here, and we're honoring a game that is actually not the one that we're expecting you to play. But um, in honor of the original classic arcade version of Donkey Kong finally coming you know, and becoming available to people via the Switch, we've decided that we're going to do Donkey Kong as our next Graveyard Duck Challenge. However, because most people don't have a Switch, we don't want to exclude anybody. So we're going to default to the NES version of the game. But... Uh, Still get our Donkey Kong love in there. So um, mm-hmm. doing it as a score attack. So kind of like a lot of the ones that we're doing. Single credit, highest score you can get. Post a screenshot to any of our social media uh, outlets. And just include your initials and um, the hashtag Graveyard Duck Challenge to get entered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone is welcome to play except for Billy Mitchell. Yes. Uh, if Billy Mitchell's listening. Um uh, Sorry, you're not eligible, so go back yeah. to your hot sauce. We only want real scores. Right. <laughs> I wondered how far into this challenge it would take for a Billy Mitchell joke to come in, and it's good to know it took about uh, 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's about the uh, length of his uh, fame. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you've seen King of Kong. Oh, yeah. I own it. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. good. So good. <laughs> It's good and it's cringeworthy, but it's still enjoyable. Oh, it's I mean it's ridiculous, but it's it's one of those fascinating train wrecks that you can't believe this exists. But yeah. You should also watch I don't remember the exact uh name of it, but there's another one that's kind of similar and it's all about um the arcade game Nibbler. And it's about uh, like one guy's uh, quest to kinda get the highest score and, and you know, still to this day, uh Kind of think. I think I saw it on Netflix. Oh, Man vs. Snake is what it was. Huh. Okay. That's, uh, that's an interesting one too. Yeah, there was another one too that was floating. Ar- there was a third one that was floating around at the, around the same time, and I can't remember what it was now. But yeah, just all of that stuff just fascinates me. Yeah. Yep. Alrighty. So yeah, get your get your quarters out and get ready for some Donkey Kong because I don't know who who knows. Maybe we can find somebody to break the record here. You yep. never know. No cement factory, but still. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> all righty. Well, uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to our episode two weeks from now. And um, I don't know. That's about all I got to say. So until we come back, I'm Scott. And I'm Wes. And just keep in mind that a good knowledge of the story before starting the game will add to your enjoyment. Game over. <laughs>